What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is, Is Test Optional Admissions Also Racist? Greetings, everyone. My name is Sierra Sterling, and on this episode, I am joined by Amanda Jolie-Vett. Amanda is the Director of College Counseling at a charter school in Houston, Texas. And on this episode, we are going to discuss the inequities that students face in college admissions. So I thought it would be a great idea with some of the recent headlines about college admissions to be able to have this uh, discussion about some of the different challenges we see as admissions counselors and college counselors in the admissions process. All right, Amanda, so we'll go ahead and get started. So for our listeners, I would like you to tell me a little bit about your work experience and how your journey was to becoming um, a director of college counseling. Well, it's it's kind of ironic how the saying goes, life comes full circle, but I think that's that's really what it was for me. Um, I actually started working in universities as a work-study employee when I was in college, and I worked in the career services office. I, at first, did not think that I would fall in love with doing something like that. I was going to be a public relations or marketing manager, and that was kind of my, my shtick for a long time. But after working there, I realized I really, really enjoyed helping other people kind of find what their pathway and what their purpose was. And um, I ended up in a nonprofit thinking, oh, here's a way to kind of bridge those two ideas together. So I did PR for a nonprofit for a little while. And as part of that role, 
we had a lot of high school students that would come in to volunteer. And I realized I enjoyed spending more time with them, talking to them about college and, and their goals than I actually did all the other public relations um, tasks. So again, life comes full circle and I ended up uh, working for a private liberal arts university for a little while, eventually rose up to assistant director of admissions in that um, university and then wanted to move on to really help those students who saw themselves as ready and eager for the journey of college, but maybe didn't always have, you know, the GPA or their skill set or their resources to really understand how that process works. And so that led me to, um, to this role specifically to kind of help bridge that gap for students between high school and in college. Okay, we have pretty similar journeys where I started in admissions, uh, but I worked for public schools. Um, and then I I found myself kind of in a situation where I was like, I, I really like talking to the kids like, and helping them out. I think when you're in a, admissions, you get these kids, you get connected. And then once they start, like they kind of forget about you. Um, and so I had that pulling feeling as well, where it's like, man, I think I might want to try being on the other side and actually, you know, helping the kids. Um, so now the school you work at now, the charter school, how would you describe your school student profile? Um, my campus specifically is just under 99% Hispanic Latinx um, student population. And that's, it, it kind of mirrors the school district. I don't think the school district overall is right at 99%, but it is definitely over 95% um, Latinx student demographics. Um, and I think that saying that is also very broad because oftentimes when we talk about students of color and their demographics, we sort of lump them into big, bigger categories, right? But I think if we're looking more specifically at what that means for our specific charter, given the city of Houston that in which it resides, we have a lot of students who are also first generation. And I think that's important to name as well. Um, and we have some students here that are also like literally part of that immigration journey for their families as well. So maybe not even first generation, maybe they are part of um, the first of their families to kind of embark upon life here in the state. So I also want to name that because I think that gives a different context to what it means to be, you know, a Latinx or Hispanic student at this campus with, without having all that color, you kind of um, you lose some of that essence of what that means. So I wanted to state that as well. And to talk a little bit more about the profile, how would you say your students range as far as income for the, the population that you service? So our specific campus right now has about an 86, sometimes it fluctuates depending on the report I'm looking at, 87% um, low income. So qualifying for federally um, free and reduced price lunching. And so basically that means that they fall significantly under the, the federal guidelines for poverty, right? And so these are students who may otherwise qualify for things like um, assist, government assistance programs, um, uh, neighborhood support, nonprofit assistance programs and things of that nature. So working with um, a large amount of low income students, minority students, um, what type of barriers do you feel like your students face going through um, the admissions process and really specifically more selective admissions? Like what barriers do you really see for your students? I think 
the number one barrier that comes up time and time and time again is not having a role model. People don't often talk about that enough as a barrier. There are a lot of assumptions made that barriers tend to be um, financial only or academic only, but a lot of people forget that having seen someone or know someone who's also gone through that journey before you um, is also a really, really strong support in place to have in order to be successful in college and especially getting through the admissions process. So I think our number one barrier for a lot of our students is that they just don't have that um, role model all the time in their family that has done this before. And so that sets them up for significant disadvantages compared to students who, you know, are legacy kids whose families for generations have gone to universities. Um, so I think that's the number one disadvantage that our kids have right now is that they just don't have um, someone that looks like them that has done this and be and be able to keep them encouraged and say, like, this is what it looks like when you get to the other side. I think some other barriers, though, that I did mention in all of that are certainly financial barriers. Um, uh, as you know, with your with your background as well, oftentimes students who have access to Finances also have access to social networks that go a long way in admissions, and that is something we don't talk about, um, not to kind of take the will of the bus, but people talk about affirmative action, but they don't talk about the fact that having money and paying your way into college or knowing someone is also a type of affirmative action. So, um, so our students don't have that ability to finagle their way in through a social network. Um, some other barriers are things that happen unbeknownst to them, right? Like not realizing the amount of language barriers that are in place. They get through high school, even their parents may have some, you know, colloquial speak of English. But once you get those admission documents and you're looking at those financial aid terms and you're really having those detailed context specific conversations about colleges and universities without understanding what that means. It can be very confusing for students and certainly for their families as well. So I think um, sometimes language barriers can, can come into play as well. And really I could go on and on and on because it, what it says is um, students from our campus and, and campuses and school districts like ours are having to play catch up essentially is what it is. Um, and so it's not just the role modeling and the finances and, and language barriers, but there are also like social uh, stigmas that go along with that. There are concerns and confidence that play into interviewing processes or how much students are willing to disclose on essays, which we both know can make or break a student's application. Um, and so having that fear around authenticity is another barrier that some of our students face as well. I'm, I'm actually very glad that you brought up essays. Um, and so I kind of want to talk about essays a little more. And something we're seeing now is holistic admissions and test optional. And there's when you do that, there's just so much placed on this essay. Um, and I feel like sometimes that essay, uh, the kids don't understand how important the essay is. And they're thinking it's more academic. So I do, um, and you brought up another thing about kind of networking and help. 
So my next question, I want to put those two together. Uh, we know that private college counselors, if you can afford it, they're a great option for some students. Um, and we know some students don't have access to that and they don't have access to that additional essay help. So um, kind of digging deeper into that, how do you feel like our students can sometimes be at a disadvantage even for processes that are kind of designed to help them because they don't have access to these uh, private entities or they don't have those additional skills like writing um, to be even competitive in, in something that is designed to help them? Yeah, so I think the first thing I wanna highlight is what you just said, right? Holistic review processes were designed with an intention, but sometimes intentionality doesn't always meet reality, right? And so to your point, it was designed to kind of so-called level the playing field so that students who maybe um, didn't have certain academic profile credentials met could kind of explain their context and, and shed some light on circumstance. The reason why our students are still set up not to necessarily always be successful in the essay is because it is contingent upon your ability to have writing skills, but not just writing skills. When we, we think about writing as putting a sentence together grammatically, right? Um, capital letter at the beginning, punctuation mark at the end, and some subject and verb somewhere in between. But really what true writing, especially in this context, when you're you're giving your writing to someone who has never seen you before. We're not just talking about the ability to pass a class there. We're talking about an ability to thoroughly communicate who you are and what your essence is. And that is a skill set that is hard taught. And oftentimes our students are already balancing this ability to language hop, right? So that's one thing. Um, but the other thing is writing takes reading skills. It takes critical thinking skills. It takes time and it takes revision. And I think that is part of the process that we don't heavily emphasize enough. And many times our students simply cannot find the time or space to, to make up all of those deficits in each of those areas. Um, some of them are still struggling a little bit with having um, their English convey the same richness that they would in their own mother language, right? Some of them are still looking for a miss. I, I have to work after school. Where am I going to find the time to revise this essay? Some of our students are like, hey, I don't even know what this essay is about. So let's let's start there. And so I think that there are multiple there are multiple points at which this essay then actually becomes overwhelming and daunting for many of our students. And that is sometimes why it becomes a thing that hurts them instead of helping them the way that it was intended to. Yes, I, I, I love kind of what you're saying because I it's hard sometimes to explain that to people occasionally where it's like, okay, they just have to tell about themselves. But I think sometimes even as an adult, it's hard to tell like, tell me about yourself. like. I struggle with, tell me about yourself. I'm like, okay, what part do you want to know? And I was really trying to explain to someone who doesn't do what we do and like an administrator in another department where the essay isn't as much about being grammatically correct as it is about the imagery and this story um, that you can tell 
And if you don't have that extra assistance or you don't have those skills, um, it can be very difficult. Even you can have the best grammatical skills, but if you don't know how to tell that story, that can really hinder you. And especially um, if you don't even know that you're supposed to tell the story, you're like, just tell me about yourself. I'm going to tell you my about my mom and my dad and school. I'm not thinking that this needs to be this amazing story that tells me that if someone else read it, they know that it's only talking about me. Exactly. And that's why I use the word essence, because really these essays are supposed to like be opportunities to bear your soul to a stranger, essentially. Um, and that's where I, I mentioned before that some of those barriers to this, yes, they're in the language and in the in the skill specifically to do that. But also, again, that's why I mentioned the fear of bearing, bearing your soul out because a lot of our students have probably undiagnosed PTSD, if I'm being honest. They've gone through a lot. They've seen a lot. Their family members have. Um, and so there's a certain amount of anxiety with disclosure that comes with that, um, especially if perhaps your background and your circumstances were never supportive of that level of disclosure um, in, others, in other contexts, right? And so I, I, these essays have good intention, but I think in reality can be very difficult for our students to tackle sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Agree. I did. I was doing a little research um, before uh, our conversation, and I read a couple articles um, that were kind of stating that they were really just saying like all of these processes that were developed to kind of get this hidden talents and find these these talented people that may get kind of swept up with some of the other requirements. These systems kind of reinforce some of the structures that they were trying to get away from. And so I think you really highlighted that perfectly. Um, so I wanna switch over a little bit to another component that um, our students sometimes face, which is testing, uh, these entrance exams. Um, and over the past, you know, we've known these exams have been around for decades, uh, but you know, lately they've really been coming under fire for some of their practices and how they really measure. And we're seeing articles and research showing that um, maybe this test is not the best indicator of a student's success or not. Um, so kind of what are your thoughts and personal feelings about entrance exams and how your students kind of face the entrance exams? So I think these are two separate, I guess, answers for me to this question. The first is my, my thoughts on the exams themselves. Um, research has been showing us, and that is, this is also a testament to the fact that many college and universities are now moving towards this whole test optional mentality, um, but that these entrance exams are not the number one indicator of student success in college. Really, your high school GPA is going to tell you way more um, about a student's ability to be successful in college than, than an SAT or ACT or whatever, you know, entrance exam you use. And the reason for that is, is pretty complex. So I'll try to simplify my thoughts <laughs> the best I can. The biggest factor in that is Anytime you standardize something, 
you take away the ability for discernment, for adaptation, for um, context and, and all these other things, right? And so what you do is you, you take uniqueness away at the expense of students having just the ability to pass the exam. And so that's really what entrance exams measure is an ability to take a test and not necessarily um, reasoning skills or logic skills or problem solving skills or shoot, the thing that that really makes or break, breaks college is your ability to make personal connections on campus and like network and, and interact well with professors and colleagues and so on and so forth. And that's a skill that is not measured on an, on an SAT or an, an entrance exam. So these exams really do um, force students just to learn to take it, right? The other thing about these exams is that when we think about barriers and we think about access to education, these exams prohibit access and they limit um, access to education because, well, the only way you can really get good at taking these tests is to take them frequently, which would cost money for many kids, or you pay someone to, to coach you through it. Um, or you spend a lot of time on your own trying to find resources. And again, the time barrier is something that I don't often hear enough either when we talk about access to education. If you have students working 20 hours a week and they're going to school, you know, 40 hours a week and they have homework another 20 hours a week, where are they finding the time to, to use all these free resources? Where are they finding the time to um, cultivate these skills? And so my opinion on entrance exams is that they are a barrier more often than they are a tool to really understand what achievement would be in the future. They're meant to be achievement tools. Um, they're meant to be aptitude tools even, but I, I think they miss the mark heavily. The other thing is, of course, um, there's been conversations around language and vocabulary that are used in, on these exams. And so that's a whole other conversation. You could probably do a whole show just on that. And so there are also um, unintentional biases in what academic language should be in these exams, right? Now, how our students specifically are impacted by these exams, to be honest, is very negatively in most cases. Um, and reasons for that include a lot of the reasons I just talked about as far as negatives associated with these types of, of tests. But I think ultimately students face some difficulties with testing fatigue, to be quite honest. Um, and so day in and day out, we're, we're thinking about um, class-specific tests. Then we're thinking about district-specific common assessments. Then we're thinking about state-specific exams. And for many kids, by the time they get down to the SAT, that is the last test that they, that they want to think about. Um, and, and we also see a lot of students who have heard about these biases and these um, barriers associated with the exam. And so then their motivation to want to overcome them is, is somewhat diminished um, at some times. And so students not only struggle with just the constant testing in general, but also they know that these tests don't highlight their abilities. And I don't think that we give students 
enough credit in that regard. They know that their their best may not shine in this particular circumstance. And that can that can be disheartening and that can be discouraging for some students. Other students, right? Um, and this is where resilience and that whole topic of how do you study and measure it uh, comes up. But there are some students who are saying, you know what, it's it's what I need in order to get what I what I want, and they find ways to work it and to master it. Um, but there are a lot of students who still also need some additional support and some help, just motivationally as well as um, those skills for taking the exam. Yes, you you brought up all you said a lot of great things, and there's just a couple points that I really want to highlight. I, you know, we think about how these tests are designed, and you know, SAT school day is relatively new in a sense. It kind of was testing out, but now it's becoming more popular. But I've just seen personally with my students how better they do by taking this test at school in an environment that they're comfortable in on a weekday, as opposed to getting up on a Saturday morning um, at 8 a.m. and sitting in somewhere else for these this time. And just something small as being in an environment where you're comfortable. Uh, I remember one of my students telling me a story about taking their exam at one of the, the colleges. And they were like, there was this ninth grader uh, and a middle schooler who were like, oh, I got almost a perfect score last time. I'm trying to get a perfect score. And I'm just thinking of like that. It sounds small, but obviously that impacted that student enough to where they feel like they had to tell me that, oh, they sat me next to a 13 year old who made a 1500 last time. And here I am barely knowing the answers to it, just how that could have potentially affected that student. Um, I could only imagine, like when I took the test, I took it at my high school, it was still on a Saturday, um, but I was in a relatively comfortable environment. So I took the SAT at my high school, but I took the ACT at another high school where some of the kids like knew the teachers and they were just kind of like, hi, Miss So-and-so or hi, Mr. So-and-so. And I'm like, man, I don't know anybody. I don't know where I'm going. I don't even know where the bathroom is. Mm-hmm. Um, so just something as small as that um, can really impact um, students. And then you talked a lot about preparing for the test. Um, and I talked to my friends, um, my son is, uh, he's about to be 11 and I'm already thinking, okay, how am I gonna prepare him for the SAT? I'm at a position where I know the business, I know how things work, I know how things operate and I can afford to put my kid into SAT prep in the seventh grade. I, you know, and I know that. And so I try to explain to, you know, sometimes students and parents about it. It's like, you know, we have kids who are training for the SAT, like they're training to go to the NFL or the NBA. And so, you know, our kids are sometimes getting their first dose of SAT prep six months before they're supposed to take it. And you have kids who've been preparing it for six years. Um, So we see things like that. And so when I tell people like, there's just a lot of things beyond just aptitude. I remember when I first started my role um, in the district and they sent us to SAT prep and I thought they were going to teach me. I was like, I am not a math teacher. I am not an English teacher. I don't know if I can teach this. And when I sat through training, it was very little on how to solve the problems. And I spent four days learning how to take the test. I then used those same strategies to take my GRE and got into grad school. And I, and I did so much better. And I was like, it's not that I didn't understand this material. I didn't know how to take this test. 
Um, and I think that is definitely missed if you don't have access and resources to learn the test as opposed to the material. Exactly. And, you know, I think for me, the reason that I continuously try to highlight some of those socio-emotional barriers is because as an adult and working in this field, I realized, you know, if somebody would have helped me, I maybe would have gone to another college. I maybe would have had more opportunities or different opportunities rather, right? Because um, I walked into my SAT and ACT blind. My counselor just was like, hey, y'all need to show us your ticket that you registered and you've taken the test. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what the acronym stood for. <laughs> I didn't know anything. Um, and it definitely was not at my high school either. So I do think that, again, many times when we think about access and we think about barriers and we think about what this work means, we oftentimes miss out on how psychological barriers and emotional barriers are sometimes the toughest to overcome. And I think to that point is like the story you were just sharing, right? How being a high schooler who is supposed to graduate and have mastered first grade, second grade, third grade, and all, all those other grades, um, feels belittled by hearing that younger younger kids are scoring better than this student thinks he or she can score on their own, right? And so when we think about just the impact of that mindset alone and what that did to, to the score, you know, um, th those, are, those are barriers that I think we need to highlight and and explore more frequently than I feel that we do. And then, so with testing, of course, with COVID-19, we're seeing schools develop. We, we knew test optional was a thing. We've had students who were doing it. It was usually kind of reserved for those students who had higher GPAs, but didn't do so well and were applying to these really selective schools. Um, so how are you seeing um, this new test optional policy kind of across the board for the most part? How is it impacting your students um, this year? I have mixed feelings about this push for a test optional. And I don't always get a lot of agreeance with my viewpoint, but it is mine. And so, <laughs> so I'll share it. Um, I think that in general, we are seeing more and more institutions um, take on a, a test optional approach, if not, but temporarily, right? And some of them have said that. Um, and I think the intention is a lot like the intentionality for SAT testing and for essay writing. I think the intention is that, you know, you're gonna find kids who are academically ready, um, but maybe there's some other context there and, and otherwise they would be missed or we would be missed without having them here, right? I think the intention is there. What I struggle with though, is that when we think about how holistic review and test optional has gone historically, it still favors kids with privilege because typically you're looking for um, students who didn't have the grade, or well, they had the grade, but maybe not the GPA, or sorry, the test score, and then 
you're thinking, okay, what other ways can they show that they are exemplary? Well, many of those opportunities come with financial ability. And so that is where there's part of me that understands the want to let students know, hey, you maybe could not have taken the test because we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and access, affordability, all of those things. But I can't help but wait on edge as I wait to see how many students um, who apply test optional get into those highly selective schools. I think that they will get into the public colleges and universities for sure under test optional, absolutely. But I, I am waiting and eager to find out if that really does a change with more of our selective and highly selective um, admissions because I just still feel that there's a reliance in those types of holistic processes on students to show that they've had, you know, trips abroad and internships and um, work, worked 20 hours while going to school and came up with some sort of club that they're now president over and all these other areas that show what a lot of universities call leadership um, or excellence. But I think at the end of the day, when I think back to a lot of my students who are 100% committing to working their butts off in college and maybe don't have that SAT score, they also don't have that ability to have all these other experiences. So I'm kind of waiting on edge to see how the chips fall and where things land. Right now, my gut is telling me to stick with, I see the intention, but I'm to see how it pans out in reality. But I do understand why, why schools are moving that way. And I applaud them for the effort. I do. Yeah. And you, again, I think we have very, we've got pretty similar views and I'm learning this as we're talking because I, and I've been having these conversations with just different people in different departments and my family and my friends and trying to explain it to them that test optional does not always mean easier. It doesn't always mean um, you get a shot. Um, because you mentioned a lot of things like where students don't have the opportunity to maybe do some of these student opportunities that cost money, you know, and I see that a lot where we have 40 kids in the district fighting for two spots because those two spots have the scholarship attached to it, where they all could qualify, they all could go, but they might not have the two or $3,000 to go on a study abroad trip for a week. Um, so they're all fighting for those two scholarship spots. Um, and those that's something that colleges are looking for. We, you can always go back to that essay. Um, some schools, their policy, if you don't submit your SAT score, you have to submit written work. Um, and I know we have one student this year who was looking for written work and the teachers that the English teachers are gone. You know, they those English teachers didn't stay. And so how is that student going to go get that um, that work that they didn't save or um, things like that? So we had to fight through that. We're just not knowing that, hey, you needed to save your your English homework um, right now with COVID. We, we're not kind of relying so much on what we know is demonstrated interest, um, actually being able to visit a campus. Visiting a campus is you know, so valuable 
whether it's for the student or even the counselor to learn things. So if a student can't afford to go visit that school, like how is that going to impact the school from thinking like, hey, this student really is interested, but they haven't came up here. Um, and I just try to explain to them, there is so many more pieces and test optional gets so sometimes real muddy. Um, I'm in a couple counselor groups because I kind of like to peep and watch what's happening kind of in the field. And uh, the biggest thing that I see from private counselors or private school um, are kind of talking about course rigor and um, which classes like, okay, well, if they're going to want to major in this, do they, should they take AP bio or AP chem? And I think about some some of the classes that we just can't offer. We don't have the ability to offer for our students. And we do re release a profile so the school can see it. But it's still a thing I, I personally felt. And I, I watched it where it's like, man, this kid took 21 AP classes. And I'm like, we don't even have 21 AP classes to offer. Offer, yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I think about that. And that's a lot of times my hesitation um, it's like, okay, you're going to go off course rigor and these courses that these kids take when we know like at our school, um, our district, it's kind of AP for all. If you want to take it, you can take it. Uh, but the school district where I came up through was not like that. And you had to prove that you were worthy of this AP and you were ready. Um, and when I got into my, I was really good in history. When I got into my AP history class, I was the only black face there. Like I was the only one in a school that was 75% minority between black and Hispanic. Mm -hmm. I was the only black kid in this whole class. So I'm like, I didn't even know, like real, realistically, like, I didn't even know we had this many white kids in this school. Cause when I look around, everybody looks like me. But when I got into these AP classes, I was it. Um, so I think about that when we talk about some of these policies for test optional, it's like some of our students, even though they could be qualified, they might not get the access to take an AP, uh, AP class. Their school might not allow them to. Um, their counselor could block them. We hear that often. Um, also with AT, uh, SAT um, subject tests. You know, before I got into undergrad admissions, because I started in grad and then I kind of worked my way down before I got into undergrad admissions, I didn't even know there was an SAT subject test. So I learned that at 23, I could imagine the things that our students don't learn, you know, being the first to go to college. So that's why when you said you were kind of like, you understand the intention, but you were hesitant. I feel it because I just think of all the things, um, the complicated processes that is and how admissions get so deep. Um, and that everyone has access to that knowledge. Um, we're in a unique situation where we're able to focus more on academic, but in a traditional school environment, a counselor does both. You know, they're doing the emotional mm -hmm. support and they're doing the academics and sometimes emotional support takes over. Our school district um, is aligned in a way where we have their two separate offices and the, our emotional support people can handle the emotional support and the academic counselors can handle the academic things. Um, but I see that with a lot of students um, and a lot of my friends, kids who are now coming to me and asking me questions where the counselor just doesn't have the capacity to focus on every kid. So they're taking that top 20 or that top 15 and focusing on those and those other kids just kind of get left um, in the way to kind of figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, so test optional, like you said, has great intention, but you know, 
sometimes it does reinforce the things that it's trying to get away from. Yeah, and I think, I mean, ultimately, my my perspective on the evolution of higher education is that we have rapidly, not even slowly, moved away from the idea of higher learning, right? Because even thinking about the term higher education versus like traditional college, traditional university, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't have this concept of higher education. That's a business term that has come about over, over time, right? But it really just used to be hey, I'm going to university, I'm going to college. There wasn't really a business model or mindset attached to it. It was supposed to be a space and an opportunity for people to do a lot of things, find themselves, refine their skills, learn new skills, um, meet some people, mature and to grow, right? And if you think about the history of education, um, in the United States, there's a lot of ups and downs and ebbs and flows of how that kind of worked out socially and for different groups of people. But I think ultimately, right, the purpose was um, to develop a whole human being, whatever that looked like in its different stages of social context um, is another topic. But I think that was supposed to be the essence. And what I am finding now is that higher education for many students feels like a race that they that they like didn't hear the gun go off and they're now starting you know 400 meters behind in a mile long race and so for a lot of students the concept of going to college and the concept of higher education is is almost like you know this big business model or industry that they just can't obtain or they can't touch because they're so far behind. And it's really disheartening when you think about the purpose of how it kind of came to be originally. Um, And to think about what that would look like if we really could figure out some strategies to truly discern students who are college ready. And I say that because I went to school with a lot of really intelligent students who I really think were going to have mental breakdowns and not finish their degree. So them having that high SAT score and them having that GPA and them being admitted even didn't keep them from almost failing out because something, you know, in their life happened and came about and, and things change. And so for me, I think that you know, one of the disadvantages that our students have is they have that resilient piece, but that's not part of the admissions process. That definitely, you know, it it always like, as you talk, I start to think of more and more things, um, but I know we have to wrap it up. um, So we're gonna do some final thoughts. So I think like, I kind of wanna see, as we're looking to the future and we're seeing how things um, are gonna start developing, do you have any um, kind of thoughts on what we can be doing or what we should be doing to help our students kind of navigate this process um, and any charge to action that we have for colleges or university or administrators on how we can make this transition and this process um, more equitable for our students? Yeah, so I, my first thought is 
thinking about intentionality versus reality. I think that if we had more opportunities to interact with applicants, um, and it's so funny that we're now doing all this virtual inter- the virtual meetings and virtual uh, admissions and things like that now, but I really feel like, to be honest, the best way to understand someone's mindset and someone's um, grit and determination is, you know, those are words we use here all the time, but the only way to really feel that is to interact, dialogue, have a conversation. Um, and I feel that we need to be taking advantage of that, that opportunity that technology affords us to do that. I think colleges and universities could go a long way by having virtual admissions or video admissions or some something that gives students an opportunity to have their voice literally heard instead of someone else imagining that voice for them through an essay or through an application or through whatever. Um, because I think oftentimes you can you can feel sincerity in someone's voice when you hear it. You can hear the excitement. You can, you can see the anxiety on their face. You, there's all these other um, components of communication out on by continuing to limit admissions to paper-based or now like, you know, electronic paper-based by just it being on a screen when there's so many more platforms we could be using right now. And if if employers are using video interviews and video um, applications, I don't see why that couldn't translate over to higher education. Um, I think also where I see things going and moving forward, I really see that there's a comeback for specialized skills. And um, for a while, community colleges were kind of like the ugly stepchild people don't really want to talk about very often. And um, sometimes we're looked down upon if someone said, hey, I'm going to the junior college um, in my neighborhood. But I think that we're seeing, especially in in the midst of this pandemic, an opportunity for those institutions specifically and students in those institutions to really shine and to say, here are all these skills that I have now learned that are helping us continue to thrive how we can in our limitations, economically, health-wise, socially, and so on and so forth. And so I really think over these next few years, I think colleges and universities will also see a lot of value in these very niche type programs that highlight skills that oftentimes were not seen as, you know, higher up on the social status for a four-year institution to, to pursue. And I think that that will, that will strengthen a lot of students' um, perceptions of this, you know, thing that has become big business higher education. And I think once they see traditional colleges and universities appreciating things like, you know, welding and appreciating things like auto mechanics and appreciating whether that's through partnerships with community colleges, I don't know how that will look, but I just, I feel that there's some sort of connection around that coming. And I think once students see that and they see value placed in areas that at their core may really speak to who they are, but maybe they they were too scared or too nervous or felt like 
you know, it didn't meet the social standard of success or whatever that whatever that looks like. I think we'll see a turnaround in higher education where some of these declines in enrollment may actually start to kind of swing back the other way on the pendulum and we'll see some more students enrolling. Um, but I think in order for it to be equitable, bringing it back, you know, full circle to your question, I think for it to be equitable, we really need to give students that opportunity to be their own voice instead of trying to give voice to our applicants. That is very well said. And we could have a whole other conversation about, you know, these programs and skills in the community college. We, we would be here all day. We could, um, we definitely could. Um, so I definitely want to thank you um, for your time and having this conversation with me. It has definitely enlightened me and I think it'll be a great conversation um, as others hear it um, and just seeing that perspective on college admissions and that transition. Um, we touched on a lot of great things. I know we could we could really do this for hours. Um, um, so I definitely wanted to thank you uh, for your time and taking this time out to speak to me. And thank you for, for inviting me. Um, you know, access is something I think, obviously I'm preaching to the choir, as they say, you know, it's, it's something that really means a lot to me and I know it means a lot to you. And so thank you for thinking of me in these conversations. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University, in conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education, during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University.